0: Hi, it's Pete Price. Welcome to my brand new podcast. Who's my first guest? I first met him in 1996 at the North Pier Blackpool when he was called Russ Watson. He's now Russell Watson, a world leading tenor. And we talked the other day. So sit back and enjoy my first ever podcast with Liverpool Live.
1: Liverpool Live!
0: Russell, what I want to say to you is, when you stood on the stage with Lily Savage and Sonia at the North Pier Blackpool, which is an iconic place in those days, it was, you know, to do that, 32 weeks, over and over again, sometimes three performances a day, did you ever, in your wildest dreams, realise where you'd finish up?
1: no, but it's funny because I look at my I look at my career in stages. So when I think about where I first started out, you know, in a, an engineering factory in Salford, doing twelve-hour night shifts, you know, coming home and chucking the proverbial oily rag on the floor, and you know, was most nights exhausted. It was it was heavy duty. Never back then. I think it was probably more unrealistic what's happened to m- myself in my life and my career. But by the time I got to working with Paul O'Grady and I was on the North Pier, I saw that as a massive climb up from where I was, you know, when I was doing the pubs and clubs in yeah. the North West. Well,
0: I, I, I went four times to see the show because, as you know, Paul and I are mates, Sonia and I are mates, and now we're mates, which is great. But when <laughs> you came on that stage and I've worked the North Pier, I was there with the Crankies. I know how cold it is. I know what that audience are like. But you tore the place apart every performance.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. But Paul, Paul was um, Paul was very generous as well because when you know when he's doing the Lily Savage show, we were doing I think seven or eight shows a week, and he would you know he was basically handing me the spotlight each night, which was incredibly generous of him, especially when he was doing things like Ness and Dorma. So in, in a lot of respects, you know, he was responsible for kind of giving me one of the first kickstarts in my career
0: you did one of the greatest things ever and you will go down in history for doing this you were a classical crossover and you actually brought music to millions of people that would never have listened to it before but because you're a good looking lad you came from working stock you came from Salford you have the voice to deliver the songs you will go down in history for that
1: well, <laughs> thank you. Um, I mean, I I'd say the plaudits and thank you very much. But I remember, you know, very clearly back in '99 when I first when I got my record deal and the, the first record record was uh, released in in early two well late two thousand. It was September two thousand, and I just remember back then, you know, how the classical music industry was, and you'll remember it really clearly as well because. So even, even back then, they had what they considered to be classical crossover artists, but none that had really broke those barriers the way we did in the early stages. And if you remember, you'd go into, you know, one of the particularly well-known record shops on the high street, and there'd usually be two or three floors in the big stores. And on the bottom floor, you'd have all your pop music. And then on the second floor, there'd be DVDs and country and western and all that kind of stuff. And then you go right all the way to the top floor, to the top of the ivory tower, and there, hidden behind a glass screen, usually with a middle-aged gentleman with swept-back grey hair and spectacles on the end of the nose, was the classical section. And it was all very intimidating. This big glass screen that separated that area from the rest of the shop. And those barriers have gone down now, which is fantastic because now classical music's just mixed in with all the mainstream repertoire, and that kind of elitist tag that it had, I think, has completely—it's been—it's gone which is a good thing, I think.
0: Tell me, as Salford lad, how did you, or were you clever at school, learning languages? Because, of course, you have to sing in different languages.
1: Well, when I went to school, um, if I'm being honest, there were language courses, but I was literally the class clown. So I would be spending my time sort of honing in more on impersonations, of of the teachers and whoever was, you know, of celebrity status at that time as opposed to kind of listening to what was going on in classes. It's only kind of like later on in life, you know, where I thought, God, I wasted a lot of time messing around in school. Should probably do a bit of work now.
0: Is it hard to learn languages or have you done all right with
1: it? I don't find it difficult because one of the things that I'm good at and I think helps to make a, a decent... Most singers who can, you know who are decent singers, will tell you that, you know, they're able to kind of utilize their voices in in different ways. Um, So languages and tunes and singing and things like that, anything that's basically linked to music, um, I seem to pick up very, very well. Um, And languages are are, are one of them. Because, I I mean, I've sung in so many languages, from Swedish to, um, to Italian to Latin to German. Um, French, goodness me, the, the, the list goes on. Incredible. I was going to say American then but I resisted the temptation.
0: <laughs> now, uh, you're passionate about uh, Salford, you've never forgotten your roots. I found out today that uh, Emma Rogers, who is a very famous sculptor who lives on the yeah. Wirral and has built some beautiful pieces, in fact she created the iconic Scylla Black statue that I got her the deal. So I got that all sorted and she created Silla um, Black. Um, she is creating a piece for Salford for ...for uh, Bexley Square, and apparently Councillor Stephen Cohen uh, from Salford got in touch with you... ...because you're such an advocate and such a uh, an ambassador for Salford. He wanted you to be part of the statue, and you are.
1: I know, and it's fantastic. And any kind of... I always find the localised accolades even more, even more thrilling than, say... I mean, I've won a few Brit Awards in my times... And, and it's great when you get that kind of recognition from the industry and, and fans and so on. But when you're recognised by your own community and your own people, it really is a, a wonderful feeling. And it's, it's lovely to, to know that, you know, I've been thought of in that way. So I'm really grateful for that.
0: Tell me about Salford. Has it changed a lot as you've grown up as a kid?
1: I think everywhere has changed since I grew up as a kid. And one of the most fundamental differences, I think, between, say, when I think about now and um, when I was a kid is it's very rare now on, on the little streets, you know, the side streets where we all used to kick around and play football. You don't really see many kids outside playing footy. on the, In fact, all you, generally most of what you see is, is kind of cars parked up. Every, you know, most families have now got two or three cars each and they're all parked down the street there's nowhere for the kids to play football and if they are playing it's usually FIFA. So I think the most, the most fundamental difference I think for me driving in, particularly where my mum lives because she's still in uh, Salford you know when I go and visit her it's like a car park on the street and there's you know these, there's always used to be jumpers at one end and jumpers at the other as goals and everyone would be kind of out on push bikes or whatever riding around the, the cul-de-sac and all that's changed. I think I think the attitude to music has changed as well. You know, I mean, I remember again when I was a kid with a bit of nostalgia there was it was always a great feeling, you know, when your favorite band had a record out and from from where I lived, you know, I would jump on the number 10 bus <clears throat> from where we lived going to, you know, Manchester town center, jump into the nearest HMV and pick up your 12-inch vinyl disc and jump back on the the bus back home and you'd be you know opening up looking at the sleeve and you'd get home and it was a big event putting it on the on the turntable and you put the the needle to the plastic and it was an event whereas now it's just so easily accessible, which in some respects is good, but I do think it's taken a little bit of the i don't know the magic away from it.
0: Salford is it a big place, a small place? Do you compare it with anywhere? Is it it got its own feel?
1: It's a big it's a big place, but it doesn't. It's it's strange because it doesn't feel big. <laughs> so it kind of in in a lot of respects it reminds me of Liverpool. It's a big place, but it still feels mm. like there's a real community spirit there. I think there's certain cities where you visit and they just feel massive and you feel completely engulfed by them. But I always get a real sense of of, commu- of, of a sense of community when, you know, when I'm in Salford. And, I, and it's exactly the same, you know, I'm not blowing smoke here. I feel exactly the same because I've I worked the clubs in Liverpool for, you know, the best part of 10 years. And all, there was always that feeling when you went there of a real sense of community, which is something that I loved.
0: What's the next piece of music going to play?
1: Well, I was thinking of maybe of a, back in 2002, I got a call from a lady called Diane Warren, who is one of the most prolific songwriters on the planet. And she'd wrote a song for my first album in 2000. Um, and she rang me up this day and she said, I've, I've got a, I've, I've, I've got something I want to put forward to you. And I was like, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, yeah, let, what is it? She said, well, she said, Star Trek are doing a new series. It's called Enterprise. And they want you to record the theme tune for it you'll be the first voice ever used on a star trek theme tune wow. so i remember thinking you you're asking me <laughs> yeah. whether i want to do the star trek theme tune hold on a minute let me just think about that for like 0.10 <laughs> 0. <laughs> of 0. <laughs> 0. a second so it's like um well i just need to check my diary <laughs> wow. as it happens yes i'm available but, I mean, it was just the most wonderful experience. And um, the the version that I did, it's kind of like a Rocky-style version. They When I went in the studio, it was funny because the, the producer that day says, I wonder if you could do, like, a kind of Rod Stewart-style voice for me, Russell. Like, that raspy thing that you sometimes do, and I was like, well... You know, it says, well, what, why didn't why didn't you get Rod Stewart? Oh, I, I'm not sure if he was available. <laughs> All right. <thank> you. <laughs> so, um, yes. Yeah. So, um, I did this kind of Rod Stewart esque voice, and needless to say, on on the credits, I've had so many people when I've said, "Oh, yeah, I did the start." Is that you? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's me. So, we can clip. What, what I wanted to do with with this was just do. A complete re-record of it, so we stripped away that kind of rocky feel, and it almost feels like a kind of anthem for, or, or even a, a kind of, I don't know, like a. It, it just feels like this year has been so tough, um, and we're going into what I hope will be a new phase in 2021, where hopefully, after the devastation that the last 12 months have of course there's going to be some light at the end of the tunnel and I just feel like the lyrics even though the song was written 18, 20 years ago, the lyrics kind of epitomise that sensibility of coming through a really dark time and hopefully, you know, having some faith and that we're going to come out at the end of the tunnel at some point and get back to some kind of semblance of normality. Great,
0: we're going to play that in a minute. But you had your own uh, dreadful tunnel you went through. You had your own uh, dreadful time at 2007 with the tumour and the bleed on the brain, which must have been the scariest time for you.
1: Yeah, the tumour hemorrhaged... Um, and was basically bleeding out um, the second one that came along, which was the one that nearly kind of put the lights out for good. And, yeah, I mean, it was, personally, from my perspective, it was one of the toughest challenges of my life. Um, but it was it was something that, you know, thankfully, I was able to find my way through. And um, I, I get people, you know, saying to me, oh, you," you know, at the time, and even now, saying, oh, you're so brave. But it's, it's funny because when you're in the position yourself, you don't feel brave. You just, there's this sense of, I just want to live. <laughs> you know, I just want to survive this. I just want to get through it. And I want everything to be kind of okay when I've got through it. But the initial feeling is not any kind of sense of bravery. I look at, you know, someone like a fireman who runs into a a house to save, you know, people who were whose lives are threatened. I look at that person and say, you know, that's brave. I feel like, you know, with myself, I just feel like lucky. <laughs> Russell, <laughs> with the silly. problems,
0: with the problems you had, was there any chance that you might have lost your voice because of it?
1: Well, with the type, the type of illness that I've had, the type of tumor that I've had, I mean, it, it basically destroyed my pituitary gland. So. I don't produce hormones naturally Um, and gaining what most people would consider to be a normally functioning life with the type of um, hormones and steroids and injections that I have to take on a daily basis. I mean, and I'm talking life sustaining. I'm not talking like, you know, I'm talking things that keep me alive. Um, most people or a lot of people with a similar situation don't go back to normal and I was told early on you know it's unlikely you'll be doing what you've been doing before the chances are you probably won't be singing the big classical repertoire and everything else and uh, I just I had other ideas like I did you know when I was told I'd never be singing classical music when I was working in a factory.
0: (laughs) No no because you without that driving force Forget it. You have to... You don't believe in yourself. You know, I've made a nice living through my life. I haven't been a big star or anything, but I've believed in myself, and when people have laughed at me and messed about and given me grief and everything, but I've believed in myself and never stopped it, Russell. Yeah, but
1: predominantly, you find with people that are negative towards you, there's usually something missing in their lives, and that's fine and fair enough. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've never done is process negativity and let it affect my life. There's always going to be negativity. I've been up against a lot of it in my life and my career. Um, and the one one piece of advice that I'd give, you know, anybody that was kind of coming into the music industry for the first time is just be prepared to hear the word no because you're going to hear it no. a lot and you're going to get a lot of promises made to you that aren't going to come to fruition. But what you've got to do is you've just got to take... You know what? You've got to take what's presented to you. You can't ever, you can't ever forge your career on promises. It just doesn't happen. Best piece of advice I'd give anybody: just you know, wait till it's there in front of you. Wait till you stood on the stage and you're doing it.
0: So I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Uh, first of all, were you disappointed you didn't go to Australia?
1: Um, <laughs> well, it's funny because it was kind of. It, it was sort of like, for me, it was it was one of those things where part of me was, was disappointed, but part of me was actually really pleased that, um, you know, North Wales, the place where we were, the, the castle that we were in was basically like 45 miles down the road from where I live. So it was uh, a damn sight easier than getting to... You know Australia and the 32-hour flight that you've got to look forward to, and then coming back with probably two weeks worth of um, jet lag running into a load of promo for the new record. So, yeah, I was, uh, and and also I've got a real affinity, as probably a lot of us probably have in this sort of like northwest area, a real affinity with um, with with Wales and North Wales in particular, because you know growing up in Salford, um, there was no. Mediterranean holidays um, in, in our household it was you know my mum and dad would throw me and my sister into the back of the Hillman in, and we'd head off to Wales for the weekend and that was kind of like our summer sabbatical so lots of fond memories of you know family time and playing around in caves and streams and climbing up the sides of mountains and stuff and just wonderful memories so it was nice to be in Wales.
0: It came over in the castle. It was getting, Russell, the most ridiculous ratings. Ratings from the old days, like 15 million. It was crazy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, I have a certain age group that follow me, my career, and fan base, and I've been out and about driving predominantly in the car obviously when i've not got my mask on but been driving around and you can see all like younger people and kids and stuff like oh mommy look who it is and yeah. that's the that's the first time that's ever happened so it's uh it's it's been it's it's, it's quite an eye-opener really because you you know you're not expecting the kind of you, you're not expecting that kind of um response you don't know what you well, you don't know what response but you know the yeah. People instantaneously recognizing me, which hadn't happened for quite some time. Mm.
0: We we've spoken privately about it, and I really, in a trillion years, not that they would ask me, but I would never go in there because of all those fears that are awoken in your body. How did you cope with it, knowing what you've been through in the past and your own health problems? Did that put you in a different light to it?
1: I've been I've been asked to do the show um six times and this year I was I was asked at, at right at the beginning of the year in January and normally we plan like a christmas tour or something like that but this year for the first time I actually thought you know what I fancy I fancy giving this a go um I spoke to the missus and said what do you think should I should I give it a go and she says yeah I, I think you should she says I think it'll be good for you um so that's the main reason that I did it I wasn't entirely sure how I was going to be able to manage all the medication that I've got to take. Because um, sometimes, you know, like, and people, it's funny because, like, you get people saying, oh, wh- he wasn't here for such yeah. a thing, yeah. and he wasn't here for that, and where was he when? Well, probably injecting something into my stomach or waiting for, you know, my morning dose of hydrocortisone to kick into my body so I can get up. So that was a bit of a challenge. But, you know, the bottom line was was that aside from the medication, side of things i really enjoyed it and it was a great experience it's one i would i will never forget no regrets at all about doing the show it's um it, it was fabulous
0: russell you mentioned your medication can we ask how that worked did you do you have to have a nurse to help you or or somebody no, I, I,
1: I self-administer everything um i inject myself Um, with growth hormone i take hydrocortisone which is kind of like the body's stress hormone that's the one that if i didn't take for you know say 36 48 hours i'd be dead um so that's the most important one the hydrocortisone and making sure that my my stress levels you know well making sure that the cortisol levels stay where they should be um like it's you know it's, it's silly things like If there was a trial or anything like that, I've got to double up on my hydrocortisone and make sure I take it, because any stress, it it goes straight to me.
0: What I love, Russell, and you've played some of the greatest concert rooms and stadiums in the world but one thing you've got that a lot of opera singers who have been trained down their road have not got you know how to handle an audience because of your working background and the way you've worked at clubs and i love the way you work an audience
1: oh thank you very much thank you i really appreciate that
0: It's a gift, isn't it? That can't it can't be taught. It's got to be done through all those nights of. Didn't work quite that night. That didn't work that night. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it's it's doing the the clubs and the pubs, doing that circuit. It's the industry of hard knots. There's no doubt about it. And it's you know it was a ten year apprenticeship to me. I remember when I first walked into the first walked onto a stage. Um, God knows what it must have looked like, but there was uh, there was hardly any movement. I was absolutely, I, I, I wouldn't say petrified, but I didn't feel comfortable in the environment. I, the confidence wasn't there, and it built up slowly. I, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of of being on stages, singing to different audiences, night after night after night. Um, and that's kind of, you know, where, where I applied my trade and it's seen me, it's seen me well, you know, in some fantastic locations where, you know, I've been on stage and I remember there's been some, there was a lovely article written about me, um, many years ago in the New York Times, I'd done a concert at Carnegie Hall and it's, that's actually one of the nicest things that's ever been written about me and the, um, the the person that wrote the article said um, he schmoozed with the audience like Frank Sinatra and he sang like Pavarotti and and it was just one of the it was like what an accolade to receive and um, it was just a a, it's a wonderful feeling when people write nice things because quite a lot of the time they're not writing nice things and you have to kind of take the good with the bad
0: Actually you had a lot of problems for a while didn't you with the music snobs but the more they had to go at you the more the people (laughs) loved you
1: (laughs) Yeah, the classical, the classical, um, what what you call the classical hierarchy, had a few issues with me, and that they uh, they had a couple of chips at me yeah. over the years. But I think oh, that just encouraged people, yes. you know, to go out and buy more <laughs> of the records. The fact that you know they were having a chip at me, and that you know a lot of the people were saying he's, he's one of us, he's one of ours, you know, yeah. leave him alone. His voice sounds great, and we love him. So who cares what you think? Kind of attitude. It was. Uh, you know again it's a it's a nice sentiment and that's where the tag the people's tenor came from.
0: I've got to tell you, talking about stage presence and learning and coming off stage and feeling the audience were different or it was a difficult night or whatever, my favourite story in my career ever was interviewing Tony Bennett many, many years ago and he came off the Empire stage and he was a very gentle soul and he was charming to be with. He was absolutely lovely and he got, I think it was a 20-minute standing ovation and he came into the dressing room and I said, <laughs> I said, That must be a fantastic feeling. And he said, I felt they weren't quite with me tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I love
1: show business. (laughs) Perspective. (laughs) Uh,
0: Do you know what, young man? It is a joy to know you. It's a joy to watch your career. I was, as you know, I was looking back in my past and I wrote about you in the echo when you were poorly because I was so worried about you. And so many of my listeners were so concerned. You've done phenomenal and you still will and your voice get better and better and the new album I love, 20 years, it's it's twenty. It's, it's just great. It, the album is called 20, the new album is called 20. Would you like to say goodbye?
1: Yeah, well first of all, Pete, you're an absolute gem. Um, I think our friendship dates back, well I think you said nineteen, the, the sort of mid-90s. I think you're a wonderful human being, a very generous soul as well. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you tonight, um, thanks to everyone who's listened in, I know there's a, a couple of uh, couple of my fans listening in as well, so night, God bless, um, stay safe and look after yourselves it's, uh, it's tough out there at the moment but um, there's a lot of praying going on and hopefully at some point some of it's going to work and come through, but look after yourselves.
0: Well, I hope you really enjoyed my first podcast, if you liked it, why not subscribe and I can be with you all the time Go on, you know it makes sense. It's Pete Price, and it's my brand new podcast.
1: Liverpool Live.